Good morning. Back to Genesis 21. Please turn there. Questions. Does God love the wicked? Does God do good to the wicked? Uh, does God love the world? And is he working for the good of the world? How does God relate to those that are not his? How would you answer those questions? You'd be chewing on that as we turn to Genesis 21, verses 15 through 21. Uh, we are back to Ishmael. We are wrapping up his story. And we're seeking to answer the question, as always, why is this here? And how does this relate to everything around it? In context changes everything. Always read in context. Ishmael is a seed. He is a son. He is Abraham's son. God has come to Abraham. God has made Abraham grand and glorious promises. Chapter 12, verse 3. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so the promise is blessing. How is God going to bless Abraham? And next verse, through him then bless all the families of the earth. Well, God goes on and reveals somehow it's going to be through the seed of Abraham, through the son of Abraham. God's blessing, which remember is ultimately God himself, reconciliation and restoration to relationship with God himself will happen in some way through the son of Abraham. As I said last time, uh, whatever these stories are about, they have to be about covenant. Because that's what the story of Abraham is about. Everything is about the covenant because the covenant is everything. And so God continues to keep his word and God continues to do what is required to fulfill the covenant. Why? Because covenant is life. Covenant is communion. Remember, when you think covenant, just think relationship. And relationship is life. God is life. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, the living God. You were created to be known by God. To know God. To love and be loved by God. Covenant is how that happens. Covenant is communion between the Creator and the creature. And since we've done everything to wreck and ruin the communion... God must do everything to reestablish and to restore the communion. And that's what he's doing for Abraham. That's what he's doing for all his people always. And God says that he is going to do all of this somehow through the seed, through the son of Abraham. Well, Ishmael is a seed. Ishmael is a son of Abraham. Is it him? Is he the one? He's not. And that's what we saw very clearly last time in verses 8 through 14. Ishmael has been cast out. That was the main idea. Ishmael mocks Isaac. Sarah tells Abraham to get rid of Ishmael. Abraham doesn't want to get rid of Ishmael. Verse 12, God tells Abraham to get rid of Ishmael. And so we left the story with Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael away. And then we looked at what Paul does with this story in Romans chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 4. He is not the son. That's the point. And I made some pretty strong claims about Ishmael uh, two weeks ago. I called him the seed of the serpent. 
I called him the um, persecutor and opposer of God's people. Again, that's what Paul does. I even took and adapted Romans 9, 13 and said, uh, just like a Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, it would be legitimate to summarize um, uh, Isaac I have loved and Ishmael I have hated. That's where we left it. But did you read the rest of the story? Did you wonder at all? I hope that you did, because I said all of this, and then we stopped at verse 14. But the story keeps going, where God sees and God hears Ishmael, where God saves Ishmael. Verse 20 even says that God was with the boy. So what? how do we reconcile those two things? Can we? Well, let's see. I stand by my statements about Ishmael last time. But God's word is always infinitely more important than my word. So let's get into the text and unpack it and see what it says. This morning, we're looking at how God relates to people. How God relates to people. I have made the claim that God only relates to people through covenant. I'm trying to help us see the world through the lens of God's word. Again, as the world increasingly divides everything, Everything into identity groups as it increasingly boils down all of those groups into two. Black versus white, oppressor versus oppressed, privilege versus poor. I'm going to increasingly try and encourage you to see that the word already has provided us with its own better, eternally important categories. Righteous or wicked. Righteous or wicked. Those are the terms Scripture speaks in. See to the woman or seed of the serpent, in the covenant, or out. Everyone, read the news, read current events, everyone is talking about power and reading everything through the lens of power and identifying and dividing based on power. Scripture talks about righteousness and reads everything through the lens of righteousness and identifies and divides based on righteousness. You are either righteous, counted righteous by grace through faith, or you are wicked. That's, that's Scripture. That's Psalm 1. Those are the only two identity groups in Scripture that matter. And so as we need to increasingly see the world through the lens of Scripture, if we're going to respond and re- relate rightly to the world, I think that this text can help us do that as it continues to lay out for us the important distinction between how God relates to the world and how God relates to his people. And those two things are fundamentally I mentioned Thursday at Bible study, reading through a, a new commentary on Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb, Dennis Johnson. It's excellent. It's been very helpful to me as I've, I've gone back to the beginning just to read through and see what I'm missing, if I'm missing things. It's been eye-opening. It's been a revelation, if you will. Um, he argues, and here's one of the things that really struck me this week, that one of the key thing, themes of the book of Revelation is that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. I think it's very important for our current cultural moment. And it's going to be important for this text. We tend to focus on what we see. God's word is here to shift our focus, to invite us to see things not from an earthly perspective, but a heavenly perspective. Not to focus first on immediate circumstances and obsess there, but on eternal and ultimate circumstances. Let's try and do that today with Ishmael. We've been focusing on God's relationship to his people, primarily through Abraham. What about God's relationship to those who are not his people? What about Ishmael? Next week, what about Abimelech? This week, primarily, we're going to see how God relates to the world. Next week, 
We're going to then come take that and apply that in more detail and see through the relationship between Abraham and Abimelech how God's people are called to relate to the world. So suspend your judgment. Hold on. Come back next week. We'll apply this further uh, specifically to us as the church. Um, But I took my title this week from Psalm 1 to try and be clear. The way of the wicked will perish. I'm going to argue that that's there in Genesis 21. Uh, first point, one main idea taken from Romans 8.28. God does not work for the good of those who are not his people. That's the case that I'm going to make from Genesis 21. God does not work for the good of those who are not his people. Pretty simple, maybe provocative, uh, we'll see. But if it's true, it should have an important effect on what we do as God's church. If true, then one simple application, church. God's people exist to preach God's gospel that creates God's people. And so again, what God is doing defines and determines what we are called to do. Does that have anything to do with this text? Let's see. Let's read and see. Uh, Genesis chapter 21. Nice and short, uh, verses 15 through 21. We'll come back and wrap up with Abimelech um, next week, and then we'll be done with 21. We're almost done with Abraham. Genesis chapter 21 Reading verses 15 through 21. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When the water skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, help us. Father, help me. Father, help us to see and hear uh, your word. Father, help me to preach and teach uh, your word. Father, help me to do that well. Help me to do that uh, clearly. Father, I pray that my desire would be your glory. My desire would be the good of your people. Uh, and I pray that you would do good uh, to me and to all of us um, through this word. Uh, Father, we are so shaped by the world. Father, shape us by your word. Father, fill our minds with the things of God. Father, make your word the lens through which we read everything else. Make what you are doing determinative, a determinative for what we are doing. Father, help us to understand the big picture. Help us to understand your glory and your grace, and your mission, and your purpose, um, so that we can um, serve and work and glorify you, and Father, as we follow you and as we grow in our love for you. Father, use this word uh, to grow our love for you um, and our love uh, for your people and our desire um, for you to save more and more people through the ministry of this church. Father, please help us. Father, help the word be centered. Um, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one big idea. God does not work for the good of those who are not his people. And again, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. Doesn't that seem to be the exact opposite of what we see 
here in this text. Let's, let's go. Let's do it. Let's see. Things are not always what they seem. Ishmael. Let's do it. Here's where uh, people, I think, get confused. But first, here's what's clear. Hagar and Ishmael have been cast out. But don't remember, don't forget the first part. God has commanded that they be cast out. Right, so this is, whatever's happening here is ultimately God's doing. The main idea of this whole account is in verses 10 and 12. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right, so Isaac, God says, Isaac is the promised seed, through whom the promised seed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the snake crusher, the representative, the champion, substitute, savior, redeemer of his people. Isaac is the one through whom that one would come. And so we know that Isaac is about more than Isaac. And so we know that the dispute and the divide between Isaac and Ishmael is about more than a minor family squabble. This is about the covenant. God's covenant. His covenant, which is life. The means through which the God of life relates to his people who have sinned and died. And thus the means through which he brings them into life. And the whole point of this passage is that Ishmael is cast out of that. He represents those who are out of the covenant. And Isaac represents those who are in the covenant. Yeah, listen, that's, just, that's what Paul does with Isaac and Ishmael in Romans 9 and in Galatians chapter 4. Right, we've got to get this first if we're going to be able to understand anything that follows. God is life. Right? God is everything. God is so gloriously good that words fail. Right? My words cannot convey to you and convince you of the eternally glorious goodness of God. Only the Spirit opening the eyes of your heart. Right? David, I have no good apart from you. And do we actually live like that is true? That there is no good apart from God. No ultimate good for us, and thus for anyone else either. Those around us, those whom we interact with, relate with, and minister to, no good apart from God. Apart from God is only death. And sin drives man apart from God. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Right, we're... Um, we're working through the Westminster Shorter Catechism with the girls again. We're up to question 18. Uh, we're smack dab in the middle of the section on sin. I'm going to figure out some way to incorporate catechesis into what we do here. Again, I'm more and more convinced that much of present-day evangelical thinking is out of line with the historic faith we claim to confess. The Reformed confessions could really help us as what they do is they help us step outside of our current cultural moment that's so easy to get caught up in. They, they root us in history. They've stood the test of time for almost 500 years, and they faithfully seek to be rooted in Scripture. We need help. We need history. We need old confessions. Listen to the shorter catechism on sin. This has been really affecting me the last week or two. You can quiz Emma or the girls on this after church and see how they're doing on their catechism questions. Um, could you give short biblical answers to these questions according to God's word? Question 14 starts off. Well, what is sin? Right? Could you define that? Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Any way. Any disobedience, any failure to conform to God's good and perfect law in any way is sin. 
the wages of which is death and separation from God. Well, question 15, by what uh, sin did our first parents fall from their original condition? Answer, our first parents' sin was eating the forbidden fruit. Simple enough. Adam and Eve, created in God's image, created like God, the one who is good, necessarily then had his good law written on their heart. God gave them one specific external command as a test of their obedience to that law as a whole. They disobeyed, they sinned. But what about us? Question 16, did all mankind fall in Adam's first disobedience? Since the covenant was made not only for Adam, but also for his natural descendants, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him in his first disobedience. I had to check it. They're better at it than I am. Uh, I'm working on it. Their brains are younger and smarter than mine. That's Romans chapter 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so here's the doctrine of original sin. We are complicit in Adam's sin. We are born sinners. He was our head, our representative. We were in him. We sinned in him and thus fell in him. Well, question 17. What happened to man in the fall? Man fell into a condition of sin and misery. You can memorize that one. That's so important. Man fell into a condition of sin and misery. And I think that's maybe one of the things that we are most missing today. A failure to actually believe this. That the condition of man, all men and women apart from Christ, is one of sin and misery. And that's the poverty that needs alleviating. Regardless of social standing, powerful or powerless, oppressed or oppressor, rich or poor, no matter how good your earthly circumstances, apart from God, everyone exists in a condition of sin and misery. Do we believe that? Does that affect how we relate to the world? Well, question 18. Well, what is sinful about man's fallen condition? The sinfulness of that fallen condition is twofold. We don't know this one yet, so don't ask him this one. First, in what is commonly called original sin, there is the guilt of Adam's first sin with its lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature. Second, are all the specific acts of disobedience that come from original sin. And that's a long one. It basically just says God is righteous. We have to be righteous to be in relationship with him. In the fall, we lost all righteousness. Thus, no relationship. Our whole nature was corrupted. We bear the guilt for specific acts of sin we commit as well. Not good. Question 19. Last one. I'll be done. Question 19. What is the misery of man's fallen condition? By their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. They are therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Church, listen, there it is. That's everything. That's it right there. We lost fellowship. Man fell into a condition of sin and misery. That condition of sin and misery is a loss of fellowship with the God who is everything. And in rebelling against and rejecting such a good and glorious God, the God of all wisdom and might, the God of love and beauty, the King and Lord and lover and life giver to his creation, in rebelling against and rejecting him in all his goodness and kindness, we earned his anger and his curse on ourselves, rightly. And thus we are subjected to all the miseries of this life. We're subjected to death itself and we're subjected to the pain of hell forever. So that's the condition of mankind. I would argue, according to God's word, summarized well in the Westminster Shorter Catechism over 400 years ago. This is man in his sin. 
This is man outside of the covenant. And I said all of that to get to this point, that Ishmael represents man outside the covenant. Ishmael represents that. Again, I think part of the problem today is that we don't see both the indescribable goodness of God and the infinite blessing of communion with him, nor do we see the unimaginable wrath of God and the infinite curse and misery of sin and opposition to him. We have lost both of these truths. So let's start with that. Let's start with Ishmael representing that. But you may... And you should be thinking, what about the text? What does how we see God interacting with and relating with Ishmael in this text bear all of that out? It's a good question. Let's, let's get into it. Remember, first, this is important. Ishmael's not a baby. Okay. Isaac was weaned uh, back in verse 8. That puts Isaac, again, we don't know exactly, but probably around three years of age. Ishmael is around 13 years older. Than Isaac. So, especially in that culture, as a 16 or 17 year old um, young man, he's a young man. All right, so he's not put on Ishmael. Ishmael is not put on Hagar's shoulder. There's been some poor uh, translating going on in verse 14. Uh, Abraham loads up Hagar with water, and water is life. That's going to be an important theme in this and the next story. Water is life. Um, Abraham then gives Hagar his son, and he sends them away into the wilderness. Verse 15, the water is gone. No water is death. And so Hagar leads Ishmael lying under a bush. Again, she's not taking an infant off of her shoulders and laying. Again, she's leading her teenage, basically adult child who is dying uh, to a bush. Bushes provide shade from the sun, uh, a sun which only expediates the death when there is no water in the desert. Hagar cannot bear to watch the suffering and death of her son, so she goes off away from him about a bow shot a bit of foreshadowing of verse 20 and the nature and future of Ishmael, and then she sits down and weeps. And listen, again, understandably, right? This is, this is a heart-wrenching scene. They have been cast out into the wilderness. It seems as if they've gotten lost. It says they have wandered in verse 14. Hagar was an Egyptian. We see in 21 that she is going to take a wife for Ishmael from Egypt. So it seems most likely that they were heading to Egypt and got lost on the way. So they have been cast out, they are lost, uh, they are hot, the water runs out, and now they are suffering and on the brink of death. It's a tragic scene. And so Hagar weeps. Verse 17. Catch this though, sort of strange. Hagar weeps. God hears the voice of the boy. And probably in connection and fulfillment of verse 13, where God has comforted Abraham by saying, I will make a nation of the son of a slave woman also because... He is your offspring. So anything that happens here happens first because of the connection to Abraham. So God hears and God intervenes. We have the angel of God show up. Again, I've I've argued on a number of occasions that the angel of God is not an angel. Uh, The angel of God is actually the son of God. The angel of God is the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, a pre-incarnate Christ. Keep that in mind. The one whom all of this is ultimately about. Here he is uh, speaking. Remember, this was clear back in chapter 16 when the angel of the Lord finds Hagar in verse 7. And then he clearly speaks for God as God. And then verse 13 says, So she, Hagar, 
called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And who spoke to her? Well, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. And Hagar calls the angel of the Lord, you are a God of seed. So remember, the angel of the Lord is the son of God, who we learn in the New Testament is both the word of God and the image of God. So generally, whenever you hear God, that's word, or see God, that's image, and you're hearing and seeing the Son, the image of the invisible God. Well, here he is again, speaking to Hagar in verse 17, saying, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. That's the same promises up in verse 13. Then in verse 19, God reveals to her a well of water. Water is life. Her water skin is filled and her son is saved. God has protected and God has preserved Ishmael. And then there's verse 20. Here's the kicker. What do we do with this? What do I do with this? And God was with the boy. What do we do with that verse? And so again and again, in the commentaries and in the sermons, I really wrestled with this text this week. Um, man, I did. So be patient with me. This was, a, this was a tough one this week. So in all the commentaries, you'll read something like this on this verse. These are two quotes. God desires to be the God of the outcast, the rejected, the abused, the dying. Or this one says, the narrative shows that God's grace extends to out- outsiders. This narrative shows that God's grace extends to outsiders. Don't forget our principle of revelation. Things are not always what they seem. I am going to disagree with those quotes. I'm going to push back on the idea that God's grace extends to outsiders. Now, again, we're all sinners. We're all outside comes in and gets us and saves us. If that's what you mean, great, of course. But if by outsiders you mean those who are outside and remain outside of the covenant which we have already established that Ishmael is the paradigm of. He is the head, the representative of that idea outside the covenant. The main idea of this passage is cast out the slave woman with her son. Ishmael is out. Again, that's Paul's interpretation. Galatians 4 and Romans 9. And thus, it could not be more wrong to say that God's grace extends to outsiders. That's actually in direct contradiction to the main thrust of this passage and the point of Ishmael, who is thrust out, which is specifically that God's saving grace is not extended to those who are not his. Flip back to Genesis 17. Let me make this case. Genesis 17. In verse 16 there, we see that God again reiterates his promise to Abraham that he will give him a son through Sarah. Abraham's response to this, verse 17, is laughter. Abraham's response to this, verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What a response that is. Uh, No thanks, God. No thanks, I already got a son. What about this? Verse 19, God says, no. No what? What does God say? No, Ishmael will not live before me. Meaning, live in fellowship or communion with me. Again, in other words, covenant, Sarah shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, not him, with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. 
The whole point, you may not like it, but again, God's whole point here is no covenant for Ishmael. No living before God for Ishmael. Covenant with Isaac. Living before God for Isaac. But what about Ishmael then? Verse 20, God says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Back to 21. That's what it means in verse 20 when it says that God was with the boy. He was with the boy to do what he had said he would do for the boy, which was to multiply him greatly and make him into a great nation. Okay, so the question is not, was God with Ishmael? Well, of course, the text says that God was with Ishmael. It's it's there. Can't deny that. The question is, why was God with Ishmael? What was the purpose or the end of God being with Ishmael? And I think the text tells us things are not always uh, what they appear. Read closely the rest of verse 20 and 21. Look at the rest of verse 20 and 21. What does it mean that God was with him? What happens? Well, first thing we see, he grows up. Okay, great. He lived in the wilderness. Don't skip that. There are no minor details. That's telling us something right there. Wilderness is outside. Specifically, next week, we go back to the land. Wilderness is outside of the land. Think Eden, garden, cultivation, presence of God, life, in. What happens? Adam and Eve sin. Out. They're cast out of the garden. East of Eden. Into the wilderness. Then there's Cain, the murderer. What happens? He is cast out east into the wilderness, a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. It says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Cain is out. That should be one of the the most, what a tragic statement. Look how clear it makes that. He goes away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence, Psalm 1611, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the same movement we see with Ishmael here. Adam, Cain, we see it in the migration with with Babel. We see it here as well. He's in the wilderness. He's outside of the covenant. And he becomes an expert with a bow, it says. Why is that emphasized? Look, he's, he's a fighter. He's a warrior. He will be characterized by conflict. He will be known for war. And we've known this all along. Since back in chapter 16, verse 12, God has told us about Ishmael, who he is and what he will be like. God says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That's verse 20. Wild donkey, wilderness, against, against, against. That's the bow. That's, that's Ishmael. And this is all confirmed for us in verse 21. Wilderness is emphasized again. That's outside. Then there's Paran. That's outside of the land. That's Arabia, which will be picked up later as an important site for, for Islam, as Muslims link themselves back, not to Isaac, but to Ishmael and his supposed pilgrimage to Mecca, their holiest site, which is located in Paran. And then the kicker, confirming the identity of Ishmael and this interpretation. And his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. Egypt is out. This was foreshadowed for us back in verse 9. 
when Hagar was described as the Egyptian. That's getting us ready for this. And imagine reading that as the original audience of this book. Imagine reading that as Israel, having just fled out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and oppression, having just been murdered and killed and pursued by the Egyptians, the enemy. Here is Ishmael marrying an Egyptian. Here is Ishmael, the enemy. And so yes, God was with the boy. But the question is, what does that mean? Why was God with the boy? What did God really do? What did God ultimately do for this one that is clearly out? How does God relate to the wicked world? What is God's general disposition toward it? I really struggled this week with how to put this and how to word this. Uh, most people would just say, oh, this is, this is common grace. And they would define that as kind of God's general disposition of love and favor for the whole world. Right? You know, kind of loves everybody, but he really loves his people. You know, kind of love, really love. He's in some sense good to all and kind to all. Or they would even say shows grace, this common grace to all. Right? So we'd read the text. They would say, look, he's out of water. God provided water. That's good. That's grace. He saved Ishmael's life. That's good. That's grace. He gave Ishmael a wife. That's good. That's grace. He made Ishmael into a great nation. That's good. That's grace. I'm asking the question, is that all good? Is that ultimately good? And can we actually call something grace, common grace, that Scripture never calls grace? Things are not always what they appear. Things from the earthly perspective are not always what they appear from the eternal perspective. Who is Ishmael? We've seen it. He's the son of the slave woman. He's cast out. He's the one Paul tells us is the representative of the flesh and the law and the persecutor of God's people. And if he is out of the covenant, the covenant which is life, then all things considered, what does Ishmael ultimately get? He gets death. He gets hell. Do we then want to call what is happening here common grace? Do we want to say that God is being ultimately good to Ishmael? He is with him. He is doing something with and for him. But what is it? I think we have a perfect example here of Matthew 16, 26. I mean, again, I've repeated, I've said this a couple of times. I'm going to keep repeating it. I said it in Sunday school. And I think we desperately need this truth today, church. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Nothing is the answer that Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that nothing is worth the soul. Gaining the whole world is nothing without gaining the life of the soul that is found only in Christ. So Ishmael's water, his physical life, his wife, his nation, if he gains all that, is ultimately nothing according to Jesus if he forfeits his soul. Because Jesus goes on in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each according to what he has done. That's the end. That's the end that we keep seeing over and over and over again in Revelation that I just cannot shake and get away from. This is the end, Jesus says, that everything is driving toward. 
The return of the Son of God in glory, his return in judgment, will always stand before him and be repaid according to what he has done. And what's the only thing done that will matter, ultimately, that will save? Jesus tells us in the previous verses. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, it is only Jesus that matters. It is only what you have done with Jesus. It is only how you have responded to him that matters. The seed, the son, he is the one. This whole story of Genesis 21 is ultimately about this one that is going to come from the line of Isaac to save his people from their sins by living, dying, and rising again in the place of his people for their sins. That's the purpose of Ishmael. That's why he's cast out, to draw our attention to Isaac and to emphasize this. And so the only way out of Shorter Catechism Question 17 the condition of sin and misery that we were all plunged into in our sin. The only way out of that is the grace of God that leads us to deny self, repent, and follow Jesus and believe in him. Listen, everything else, I don't care whatever condition you fix, they are left in that condition. They are left in the condition of sin and misery. They're still in the condition of question 19, loss of fellowship with God, under his anger and curse, subject to all the miseries of this life, death itself, and the pains of hell forever. And Ishmael, out of the covenant, represents that. Can we ultimately say that what God does here for Ishmael then is good? Can we call this, can we, can we call this common grace? Can we call anything grace in which the ultimate outcome is eternal separation from God and hell? Of course not. Of course not. God does not relate to the world on the basis of common grace. We talked about this a lot back in Philippians. I did a sermon on providence in Psalms. Uh, scripture and the confessions never talk about common grace. They talk about God's providence. God's providence is the principle that you need. What is God's providence? It is the outworking of God's decree. Everything changes if we believe that God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things and that he is then working all those things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. If he has declared the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, Isaiah 46.10. God is a lot bigger than we think. He decrees everything. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will, by which he has foreordained, uh, by which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that happens. Am I got it right? I missed a part. God decrees everything that happens. Everything. And that answer tells us he decrees it all first for his own glory, the revelation of his goodness and his greatness. And he does that primarily through two things, through the salvation of his people and through the judgment of his enemies. as a beautiful demonstration of his mercy and a beautiful demonstration of his justice. That is what God is ultimately doing in all things. And he has already decreed everything that will work towards those ends. That's God's decree. But how does God execute? How does he carry out his decrees? God carries out his decrees by creation and providence. He creates everything, 
and then he sustains and he directs everything. That's God's providence. And that's how God relates to the wicked and to the world. Not common grace, providence. What is providence? 1689, to the rescue. Uh, as church gets more vague in general, we're going to get more specific and precise. Uh, theology matters. And it, it's, it's a kindness to be clear about what we believe, about, about what I believe. I'm working to be more clear. Uh, I, I've been greatly impacted by a statement I read last year. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, classic work, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Read it. Uh, if you struggle with joy, if you are prone to the blues, read Spiritual Depression. But in that book, he writes... The most comfortable type of religion is always a vague religion, nebulous and uncertain, cluttered up with forms and ritual. The more vague and indefinite your religion, the more comfortable it is. There is nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decisions. I I want to be more clear-cut, thus more clarity, more 1689. What is providence? Chapter 5 says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. So God's providence is that it means that God is meticulously upholding and governing and directing all things to his good and glorious ends. All creatures, including the wicked and the world. How does he direct the wicked and the world? To what ends? Paragraph 6 of chapter 5. God, as the righteous judge, sometimes blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sins. He withholds his grace from them by which they could have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. Not only that, but sometimes he also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations that their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin. Moreover, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. You see, there's no common grace there. It specifically says he withholds his grace from them. He gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan. That's what God is ultimately doing for Ishmael here. That must be the case. That must logically follow if Ishmael is outside of the covenant, which means this is clearly not saving grace, which is the most important thing. I was, I was initially attempted at the beginning of the week to call this common grace, again, something less than. Again, I'm increasingly less comfortable with that term. I was tempted to call it common goodness or kindness to avoid the term grace, but I can't do it because that's not what God is doing. He is not working towards Ishmael's ultimate good. He's working toward Isaac's ultimate good. He's not working toward the ultimate good of the wicked, but the ultimate good of the righteous. Ishmael is going to be the father of the peoples who were enemies to God's people, and God is going to use them to sanctify his people and to test and to try his people. He is going to work good for his people through Ishmael and his people, but God does not work for the good of those who are not his. Things are not always what they seem. And our problem is that we tend to focus on what things seem. We focus on appearances. We focus on earthly circumstances. And so we see Ishmael gets water. He gets life. He gets a wife. He gets a nation. Hey, that's good. 
We focus on earthly circumstances of people and think, hey, we've helped them out. We've done them good. But then we define it exclusively in an earthly sense. They had less stuff, less money. Now they have more stuff, more money. That's grace. That's good. Turn to Psalm 73. Go read and meditate this week on Psalm 73. So I love this psalm. Page 485, if you want to look at Psalm 73. You cannot determine the goodness of something based upon appearances. You cannot determine the well-being of someone based upon physical, financial, or social circumstances. You know, hopefully you know Psalm 73 because you've struggled with this at some point in time. I have too. Uh, Asaph sees the prosperity of the wicked in verse 3. And Asaph is distraught. He's envious. He looks at appearances. He looks at immediate earthly circumstances. And he sees they're rich. They're powerful. They have money. They have things. They have financial security, food security. They are outwardly blessed. Verse 12 says they are always at ease. They increase in riches. Again, the very things we are often working towards to make people at ease and to increase riches. But then Asaph begins to understand something. He begins to see that things are not always as they seem. He's wrestling. How could he understand the wealth of the wicked? He couldn't until verse 17. Look at verse 17. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You see what just happened? His focus has been shifted. His perspective has shifted from earthly to eternal. From now to then. From present to the end. Church, consider the end. Consider eternity. Verse 18, he says, truly you. He's speaking to God. Truly you, God, set them in slippery places. Don't miss that. God is the actor here. God is the one working. He is sovereign. These people are blessed. They are prosperous. They are wealthy. They are at ease. God has done that. God was with them like he was with Ishmael. But again, the question is, why was he with them? Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Church, things are not always as they appear. They appeared prosperous and safe and secure. They were actually in a slippery place and in great danger. And ruin was coming. And they were destroyed. And there was terror. And so Asaph goes on to repent of his envy, of his failure to see things as God sees them. We need to repent of our failure to see things as God sees them. And then Asaph cries out to God in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth. I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph gets it. Asaph now understands that God is life and there's nothing else in comparison that having everything and gaining the whole world without him is ultimately having nothing. But then the corollary is true that having nothing with him is ultimately everything. For he has gained his soul's delight. And in so doing, he has gained his soul, his life. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. this, This is just God's word. That's the end. Again. And church, we have to read the now in light of the end. 
We have to work now in light of the end. We have to relate to the world in light of the end. In the end, as we've seen, is Christ the judge coming to execute his perfect justice. And as Thomas Watson puts it, hell is a place of pure justice. Hell is a place of pure justice. No one gets injustice, ultimately. Of course there's great injustice in this earthly life. There's no ultimate injustice. All are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. A wage is what you have earned, merited, deserved. A wage is justice. Scripture says justice is death. Hell is a place of pure justice. So you either get mercy or you get justice. So so what does Ishmael get? Ultimately, what, what does the world get? Only justice. So again, I'm not going to quibble in some sense. And what is God doing to Ishmael? Call it what you will. I'm not going to quibble with you about the semantics. But what is the ultimate end and outcome of what God does? What does Ishmael do with it? What do the wicked do with the good of this life? Because as Thomas Watson goes on to say, more Watson, mercy abused turns to fury. Call it whatever you want. Mercy, goodness, common grace, whatever you want to call it. Mercy abused turns to fury. And Watson goes on, he says, Wicked men have mercies by providence, not by virtue of a covenant, with God's leave, not with God's love. But such as are in covenant have their mercies sweetened with God's love, and they swim to them in the blood of Christ. I wish I could, I wish I could write like that. Church, we have to understand this distinction. Whatever you want to call what the world gets from God in this life, what Watson says they get it with God's leave, not with his love. There is an eternal difference between the world and the church, the people of Satan and the people of God, the righteous and the wicked, Isaac and Ishmael. God is not ultimately working toward Ishmael's good here. And he is not ultimately working toward the good of the wicked Church, logically, this has to follow. It's the opposite. Much of my thinking on this has been shaped by Watson. Back since uh, February, I read read a line in his book, uh, All Things for Good, and I just can't shake it. Um, All Things for Good is a wonderful book in which he just, you think I'm slow. Um, The Puritans, he takes, there's a whole book, he's unpacking and explaining one verse, Romans 8, 28. And he's unpacking uh, the truth that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Church, what a wonderful encouragement you have there in God's word, if you are Christ's. All the crazy right now, all the difficulties of the last six months, whatever is going on in your personal life that is hard and difficult, whatever is going to come in the crazy next five or six weeks, God promises that he is working out all those things for your ultimate good. He is making you more and more like Christ. He is fitting you and preparing you for eternity, for life everlasting with him. The God who is goodness and life. Uh, The God in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. He promises you, Christian, that he is working all things, even really hard things, toward those good and glorious ends. So church, trust him. Rejoice in him. Rest in him. But... Watson then goes on to point out that if that verse is true, it's it's in God's word, if that verse is true, then its opposite follows as well. If Romans 8.28 reveals to us the blessed condition 
of the righteous. He writes also, notice then the miserable condition of the wicked. To them that are godly, evil things work for good. To them that are evil, good things work for hurt. And that's Ishmael. And so Watson continues. Temporal good things work for the hurt to the wicked. Temporal good things work for hurt to the wicked. Man, this is Watson. This is not me. Riches and prosperity are not benefits, but snares. Worldly things are given to the wicked for a snare. The common mercies wicked men have are not lodestones to draw them nearer to God, but they are millstones to sink them deeper into hell. That's a serious and sobering statement, church. I mean, do we believe that? Are we living and acting and working as if we believe that? There is an end, and everything is working towards those ends. There is an eternity. Church, study eternity. And I'm stealing from Watson again. Don't believe me. Believe one of the great saints of church history. Our thoughts should chiefly run on eternity. Time is but scarce a minute to eternity. Brethren, we are every day traveling to eternity. Oh, study the shortness of life and the length of eternity. Amen. Church, study eternity. Read now through the lens of then. Things are not always what they appear. God's word is here to show us how things truly are. It is here to fix our minds on eternity and to fix our focus on Christ who is life and then to live accordingly, to live for his glory and the actual good of those around us. And scripture is just, it cannot be more clear. There is no good apart from him. Ishmael is out. God is not doing Ishmael ultimate good in this passage. And Ishmael stands for and represents the wicked world in general. But praise God, church. God is saving people out of the wicked world. You know, he's, he's even saving some who are descended from Ishmael. He's saving Jew and Gentile, son of Isaac, and any and all who repent and believe and turn to Christ. For those, God works all things together for good, which is eternal, a perfect, glorious communion with him. But for everyone else, all things ultimately work for ill. And so church, we're not even going to do the application here. We'll do it um, next week. We'll, we'll look at this. We're going to apply it in more detail. We're going to look at how Abraham relates to Abimelech and then how we can relate to the world. But ultimately, there's more to say, but ultimately we must live and act in light of this reality. Eternity changes everything. It determines who we are. And it determines what we are here for. We are salt and light. We are ambassadors. We are witnesses. God relates to the world through Christ. And it is ultimately Christ's words himself. It is ultimately only what one does with Christ that matters. He's the division. He's the distinction. Covenant is life. And you are either in or you are out. And Christ is the difference. Christ is what matters. That is why we must preach Christ crucified and call sinners to repentance. And in so doing, call sinners to their only and to their ultimate good, which is God himself, who is found only in and through Jesus Christ. If you would bow with me, let's, let's close with a word of prayer.
Father, please help us. Please help me. Father, help us to love your word. Help us to desire to, to drink from your word daily and deeply. To come to it humbly and desire to be shaped by it. Father, make it the glasses, the lens through which we read everything else. Father, help us to look at the world and at our current circumstances and our cultural, our political circumstances, everything the way that you look at it. Help us to see things from your heavenly perspective. Help us to understand that you are the God of all glory who is doing all things um, according to his will, who is working all things out uh, to glorify himself through the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. I pray that that would inform and define who we are and what we're doing and what we are living for and what we are about. Father, yeah, we're talking about this a lot, but Father, we, we fail to speak of you as we are supposed to speak of you. I fail to speak of you as we are to speak of you. We've heard this again and again and again, and yet how little have we talked with anyone about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us. We thank you that you are patient and kind. We thank you that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So, Father, I pray that you would do so in this area. Father, you would give us great wisdom, but then also great boldness and joy and desire to, to love our neighbors and to love a dying world and to understand um, that we can ultimately only do that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are other things that need to be done, of course. But Father, if we do not do this thing, we'll do nothing. Father, we are not doing this thing. Father, forgive us and help us. Father, we pray for this church. Pray for the churches in this city. Father, pray for the churches in this country. Pray that we would be the church. That we would be the, the light and the lampstands that you have called us to be. We would not follow the world and try to do the best that we can to be like the world and, and please the world. That we would love the world by calling the world to repentance and faith. And by preaching Jesus Christ to this dark and dying, desperate world. Father, Christ is the only hope for all that ails us. So Father, show us Christ. Enlarge my love for him. Enlarge the love of him for this church, in this church. Enlarge our love for one another because you have so perfectly and fully and finally loved us in Christ. And then I pray uh, that from that, you would then wisely lead us to love our world well and to love our neighbors uh, the way that you have called us to. Father, please help us, we pray. Help us in accordance with your word and help us for your glory. And we ask this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.